Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very special. We're going to be getting into some political philosophy, uh, political philosophy of religion. It's going to be really fun. It's a new area for me. It's a hole in my education, so I'm about to be educated today. It's going to be awesome. And it's probably a hole for a lot of you as well. We have with us Dr. Kevin Vallier, and we're going to be talking about his new book, All the Kingdoms of the World. The subtitle there is On Radical Religious Alternatives to Liberalism. So we're going to be talking about liberalism, anti-liberalism, post-liberalism, the battle between liberalism and socialism. It's going to be really fun. I'm really excited. So stay tuned to the end so you guys can become experts on all these topics. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen on Patreon and YouTube members. You guys are awesome. That's the best way to support the podcast. Uh, if you guys want to see me continue to have scholars on to talk about their work, if you want to see me continue to have lights on in my home and feed my dogs, please consider becoming a Patreon patron or YouTube member. There's different perks at different levels of support. You can find the links in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. And if you don't want to hear too much about Athletic Greens and stuff, then just support the podcast. That'd be great. All right. Well, let's jump in with Dr. Vallier and talk about uh, religious liberalism. Let's talk about political philosophy and all the good stuff covered in his new book. Here we go. Hey, thanks so much for coming Hi. on the podcast, man. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm 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 excited. I know this is a little different um, uh, uh, from your standard fare, but I think it'll be uh, fun and fresh. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'd love to, since it is a little bit different, I'd love to introduce you to my audience a little bit more. Um, sure. Would you, how, how do you describe yourself? Do you think of yourself as a political philosopher, a philosopher who specializes in politics? Or how, how do you think of yourself? So I'm primarily a political philosopher <clears throat> trained in the analytic tradition, but I've always had a foot in sort of analytic philosophy of religion. Um, but I was always the guy that worked on the religion and politics issues. Um, so, you know, I'm not done much as sort of straight philosophy of religion, but I'm, I know many people in the community and um, I definitely, uh, you know, follow their work and follow all the podcasts uh, and shows and stuff that talk about their stuff. Um, so, yeah, I would say I'm a political philosopher, but I'm definitely in conversation with philosophy of religion. Um, but I'm also in conversation with a kind of new movement within political philosophy that we call PPE, philosophy, politics, economics. Okay. Um, and so the way I do political philosophy is a little bit different um, than um, sort of the, the mainstream because I pay a lot of attention uh, where I can to the social sciences. That's awesome. And, and um, I could be wrong here because I don't know the literature very well, but it doesn't seem like there's a whole ton of people filling that space that you're working in right now. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more people who work on this in um, political theory, um, like in political science departments, and um, uh, some in theology, um, but a lot in constitutional law. Mm -hmm. um, so there is this kind of like bigger law and religion community they, th that sometimes addresses some of these deeper issues, but um, um, mostly tends to focus on sort of policy and legal issues, things right. like religious exemptions um, and things yeah. like that. So there is a certain way in which, you know, I'm pretty, pretty lonely in what I'm, in what okay. I'm doing. That's cool. Well, um, it's really cool, but it's also, I'm glad that you're doing it. And uh, maybe, maybe uh, we can call some of the audience members up to it. If you're interested in this stuff, jump in, like start, start getting uh, your chops in, in this field. Um, uh, Kevin, Kevin what did you do your dissertation on? 
So my dissertation was actually on the proper role of religion uh, in the life of liberal democracies. So, you know, we'll talk about kind of what liberalism is, but it is kind of associated with a kind of secular approach to political life where, you know, religion is kind of like this scary uh, or maybe just kind of a bothersome thing in politics that should sort of be kept out of it. Um, and it turns out a lot of the most sophisticated sort of people in that literature started kind of with that position. And the very weird thing about the subfield is that most people change their minds hmm. and in the same religion-friendly direction um, huh. over time. So these include John Rawls, Jürgen Habermas, are the two most famous philosophers um, who actually uh, changed their minds um, in the religion-friendly direction. I wrote against the privatization of religion and politics uh, completely. I do think, for instance, like Supreme Court justices should reason in the language of the Constitution. You know, like Catholic Supreme Court justice shouldn't be consulting a papal encyclical and deciding how to rule. But mm. when it comes to being a citizen, you know, whether you're acting for moral or religious considerations or both, um, that that's, you know, totally legitimate. Uh, so that's kind of what I wrote about and defended. And that became my 2014 book, Liberal Politics and, and Public Faith. Although that's entirely focused on the role of religion and in liberal democratic societies, not um, sort of radical alternatives. Okay, awesome. Well, I'll put a, a link to uh, that book in the description, folks, if you want to nice. check that out. That'd be huge. Um, as we get into this book, uh, I was just curious, like, how did you get interested in religious anti-liberalism? Well, I've been writing on the liberal tradition and interested in the liberal tradition in one form or another since I was 17. Um, and my political interests, you know, got going my very sort of senior year of high school, but also, um, uh, very much in the, um, freshman year of, of college. Uh, and so for me now that's, you know, been over 20 years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I also was not a Christian between ages 13 and 20. And I went to Washington university in St. Louis and down the road was St. Louis university with Eleanor Stump but also Richard Swinburne, who was on leave there for a year. Mm. Um, and in part through the influ their influence, the influence of their graduate students, I, I became a Christian. Wow. And so I, I had these kind of, they were left liberal commitments when I first got to WashU, and then they became what we might call like right liberal or libertarian commitments mm. um, after that. And so, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, I was just fascinated by these kind of two schools of thought, and I had this interest in whether they hung together or not. Yeah. And I had to set that aside in graduate school and, you know, when I was an assistant professor before tenure, because it was just too red hot of a topic, mm -hmm. um, because I had heterodox views, both in philosophy in both religious matters and political matters at the same time, like in the community, you can, they'll sometimes tolerate like one heterodoxy. Sure. Like yeah. as, as long as you're like an atheist, you can be a libertarian, or as long as you're a progressive, you can be a Christian. Um, but if you were neither of those things, then it's a problem. So. I just told myself, well, I would, I would, I'm fascinated by this question. I've been fascinated by this question since I was 18 or 19. Um, I because they reconverted when I was uh, tw 20, but I was on the way by then. Um, and now uh, I had a chance to write about it. And lo and behold, Oxford decided that they, Oxford politics decided they'd commission a book on the topic. And one day mm -hmm. the invitation came to me. And so, uh, uh, that, that was fortuitous, I suppose. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Um, so, so in the book, you talk about how religion and politics have always been with us since, since yeah. you know, recorded history. Yeah. Do you, have they yeah. always been um, intermingled or um, even now you think of like the West and how there's a separation between church and state. Is, is there a genuine separation? Have they always been intermingled? Have you, just from your own uh, study of history, have you seen a place where it hasn't been? Or So, so, so let me um, tell uh, three stories. 
uh, I'll give three answers uh, to your question that kind of fit historically. Um, the very much atheist philosophy, uh, uh, evolutionary uh, or theory of the evolution of religion, theorist, uh, psychologist of religion, Robin Dunbar has published a book, um, uh, how religion evolved. And, you know, I think religion is true, but I still think, you know, uh, the way, the, the truth of religion gets revealed through historical processes, um, as well as say scripture. And um, he says in the beginning of that book, we have no archaeological or ethnographic record of any society that does not have religious people in it. Mm. That as far as we know, there's never existed a fully secular society ever. Mm. So he decides, you know, and argues at length that religion is a kind of human trait. It's like having blue eyes or brown hair. Not everyone has it, but it's there and it's easily awakened. And there are some people that always have it. And so the wishes of many secular people that religion will go away. In the United States, we're not secularizing, we're de-Christianizing. If you poll the nuns and you ask what they believe of afterlife, souls, aliens, uh, I know aliens might be like naturalistic, but I mean, come on, uh, crystals, you know, horoscopes, you know, all this stuff. I mean, people don't just, they, they may leave Christianity, but they're, they're not becoming, you know, scientific naturalists by any right. stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Karma, uh, everything happens yep. for a reason, depending yep. on how you, yeah. Yep. Yep. Spiritual, not religious, you know, all of that stuff. Um, so I think the religious impulse is just extremely broad. It's deeply embedded in almost every human being. Um, and then, of course, with respect to politics, it's just obvious, right? Like even going back to tribes, the, the, the beta males have to unite to stop an alpha that is out of control. Um, and I think that's in some ways where politics originated is the, the abuse of tribal leaders and people trying to resist to tribal leaders with coalitions. Mm. So I actually think our political impulses go back hundreds of thousands of years, um, but they don't come to like full fruition until we enter agricultural societies, pagan societies broadly. But those societies didn't always link politics and religion directly. It's like Zeus is not morally perfect, right? Right. Um, so what happens is you start to see, you know, really about 5,000 years ago, the evolution of moralizing religions, one that postulated that there was a deity or a karmic system or something to that effect um, that, that governed the cosmos and that applied to every human life. Um, and those, the great religions, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism in the East, so um, Zoroastrianism, you made a note. Well, yeah, must I mentioned not, because they we, was, we can't forget, forget them <laughs> because they were a big deal, right? Big, very influential, including influential in other religions, um, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and so on. So you you have in the ancient world the transition from pagan regimes to what are sometimes called the axial age religions. They're the religions of that had detailed theologies and moral perspectives, um, and those those societies all create civilizations. That, you know, they, they may spin through, you know, kings and emperors and, and different ethnic groups in charge. Um, but the religions are still deeply shaping like every aspect of human life, art, architecture, music, um, worship, beliefs about the afterlife, rituals, on and on and on and on. And this was really the case without interruption until the 18th century, um, all over the world, as far as we know. Um, and then the French Revolution happens. And in some ways, I think that's like the precipitating uh, secularizing event, because there is now some historical evidence that uh, France used to be a much, a very large country in Europe. Um, and uh, some people think that their birth rate started to fall after the revolution because they were becoming less religious. Hmm. Um, and so what you start to get is, is first you get the sort of ideology of 
in the 17th century of, uh, of liberalism, which early on is um, not anti-religious. It's like usually Protestant, actually. Um, so like it figures like John Locke, who was, you know, a pretty serious Protestant Christian. Um, in the 18th century, liberalism's preaching of religious toleration, the disestablishment of religion, um, the sort of erosion or elimination of aristocratic privilege, um, the support for the free market, which was central features of liberalism for the 17th to the 19th centuries, um, start to say, look, um, people disagree about religion a lot, like Protestants even disagree a lot. And if we try to establish a religion, we're just going to have to use a lot of violence and society's not going to work as well. Um, and you know what? We might actually violate the dignity of the person uh, as made in the divine image. And so with, you know, it sort of starts off as a pragmatic argument, but then it gradually becomes a, a principled argument for the disestablishment of religion. But, you know, and so liberal, the liberal tradition, you know, takes a variety of different stances towards religion, but whatever it's for, it's for the disestablishment of religion. That is, the state should not impose a particular religion as true. So you have all kinds of Christian liberals and they're for this. Um, so like the American Baptists vote for Jefferson in part because they really want separation of church and state because they think the established religions of the colonies are really bad for them. Um, so, you know, you know, a lot of this starts off as, as Christian ideas, as Protestant ideas, as intra-Protestant disputes. Um, um, and, and, and so, so liberalism is kind of a secularizing movement by kind of secularizing the state. Um, but then there are other liberals like John Stuart Mill that are just like very opposed to Christianity. Um, and want people to just kind of stop being Christians in their private lives. And that starts to take a lot more shape in the 19th century. In the 19th century, you also get the rise of socialism. The socialism only arises in the context of the Industrial Revolution because of its sort of pro-worker status and uh, its focus on the nationalization of the means of production. That is, that is the goods that make other goods, capital, like factories, mines. Um, and so um, when socialism arises and proposes the social or government ownership of the means of production, capital um it also turns out to be a secularizing movement but much much more aggressively than liberalism hmm. um in many cases they're trying to create entire replacements um doctrines for um for liberalism now some liberals attempted this but again it was nothing like the degree of effort as socialism and and of course among the threads of socialism nothing was more aggressive than marxist socialism which is really only one thread of 19th century socialism, but that became dominant pretty quickly after the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. Yeah. Um, and so what you see in the 20th century is liberalism and socialism just break out of Western Europe and they spread everywhere and the United States, they spread everywhere. Um, and they bring the secularizing uh, uh, forces with them. So, you know, liberals are disestablishing religion. They're sometimes kind of trying pretty hard to privatize religion, like France, Quebec, and so on. Um, then you get the kind of secular democratic socialists that aren't Marxist, um, but you see in like Ataturk in Turkey, um, you know, engaging in pretty serious, severe um, secularization in Turkey, even abolishes that Islamic caliphate. Uh, it's a little bit like abolishing the papacy. It's a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, India, you have the partition um, with Pakistan and that's a Muslim nation, but India considered itself, identified itself as a secular state. Um, but then you start to get in the Marxist led countries, you know, Russia, you know, the Soviet Union, ultimately China as well, um, you know, North Korea, Vietnam, and so on. And, and you just start to see just the wholesale des destruction uh, of religious belief. Um, and so a lot of people start to see, oh, look, religion is going away. It's, it's becoming less influential in politics or what have you. And then socialism collapses. Um, and also a little bit before that, we have the Iranian revolution, which is also very important in that 
And it's all of a sudden like these religiously infused political movements start to recover. Um, Hindu nationalism had been building, uh, for many decades, but it, you know, it became dominant, um, in the, in the late two thousands and over the last 10 years, um, Confucian revival in China is only a few decades old and survived Mao's anti-Confucian campaigns. Um, and you know, Orthodox Russia and it's Russia returning to Orthodox Christianity, um, and Putin seeing himself as a kind of leader of, you know, the Orthodox, uh, uh, faith politically is a kind of like czar rather than sort of a secularizing Soviet dictator. Um, Hungary turning towards more sort of Catholic anti-liberalism, Poland doing the same thing. Um, and in a way to a greater extent, um, you know, and then you start to see kind of minority movements, but you see a lot of in the United States sort of first, you've got kind of got the, the moral majority, um, which, you know, but in particular, you know, you start to see it's kind of loosely called Christian nationalism, but then, um, What's really happened and what's really striking is that many of these movements have developed pretty sophisticated intellectuals mm. and these movements um, and these intellectuals have published like treatises and stuff. And I've read a lot of them um, and I write about them in the book. Um, so what's happening is you've got these the sort of rejection of liberalism and socialism, secularization of public life, because that's been the human norm. Right. It's just humanity returning to the spiritual and political norm that I think is built in. So it, 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 we only ever thought that this was going to happen because, you know, people extrapolated Western European secularization to the world um, and they were just misled because socialism was just suppressing the political expression of the great religions. So I expect these movements uh, to grow and to continue and to become more powerful with time, especially as very religious people outpopulate secular people. Right. Um, yeah. It's going to be a very important trend in the United States um, uh, and, and also um, uh, throughout the world in particular. So. It's kind of a it's kind of a shocking realization because I don't know if if the uh, secularizing folks or the the secularists those who are in favor of uh, strong separation or or even diminishment of religion I don't know if they were the loudest or what but a lot of us were like yeah religion's diminishing and then you turn around and you see like wait what's happening in Russia what what are you saying yeah. and like yeah. oh wow it's all here and I thought we were these modern folks who turned our back on religion. I, I know um, a little bit differently because I work on a college campus as a uh, campus minister. And so I, I know people want to talk about God because I ask them and they say, yes, let's talk about God. But um, I'm even surprised by a lot of this and like mm -hmm. Confucianism in China. And yeah, the, every now and then I hear something about India and I'm like, holy cow, are you serious? That's insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you think that it's been uh, the religious um, uh, impetus or whatever? Like, do you think that was that just suppressed or do you think it actually was like diminished in the folks of those time periods when uh, socialism and this, I don't know if it's neoliberalism, we haven't defined that stuff yet, but when that liberalism was going through, was it suppressed or do you think those people actually bought in and were trying to create like a anti-religious or uh, free of religious uh, utopia type thing? So, so that's actually a, a, a pretty complex question. I do think that um, atheist belief took pretty deep hold. Okay. Um, in some societies, I actually think there are many, most Russians really were atheists. Okay. Um, and I do think that, that most Chinese, that China is the most atheist country. Um, and I think that Mao had that effect in part. Okay. Um, so some countries, you know, it takes in other countries where there's socialist leadership, there's just all kinds of religious people under it. So, you know, you, you look at, for instance, you know, the Gandhis and so on in, um, in India, you know, everyone's very religious except for the elites and a lot of them are educated in the uk obviously mm -hmm. and they're going to receive a pretty secular education 
Um, but it, so, so there's some countries in which it kind of filters down to the public mm-hmm. and there's some countries where it doesn't, but what's universal is the elites tending to adopt liberalism, socialism, or some hybrid, mm-hmm. um, as I, in, as I would put it, their religion substitute, because they felt like, you know, liberalism and socialism were kind of, you could reach their conclusions from reason alone. Mm-hmm. You know, liberalism and socialism were very pro-science. Um, and so that whole kind of like scientific secularizing impulse combined with a need for something like a religion substitute came together. It's no clearer than it is in Marxism, which of course describes itself as scientific socialism, but was anything but scientific. It's one of the most ferociously sort of like anti-open inquiry ideologies uh, or systems of thought that, you know, ever, uh, ever existed. I mean, yeah. many Marxists were far more aggressive and close-minded than, than many people of faith. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of people were kind of getting their religion needs met, but lying to themselves about the way they were doing it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that is complex question. I think there's, a, there's kind of an interesting story in the elites where there's a period of time where in the 20th century in particular, everything, everyone thinks socialism is coming. Everyone thinks it's inevitable. It's just a matter of time and what particular form it will take. And it's amazing that there was like global, enormous agreement that socialism was the future and they were all incorrect. Yeah. It, it makes it even more surprising then to, uh, to hear that there's at least some places where the atheist uh, ideology did take root because then to see the swing is like, that's really fantastical. Like that yeah. the swing happened. It wasn't just the suppression lifted and oh, it was already here the whole time. No, it was a big swing from this to that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's been a big swing back in China because you, because the, to be a Confucian or to be influenced by Confucianism, it, it's kind of just a, a system of, uh, of virtue. And there is this supernatural power of heaven, Tian, but it's not necessarily an agent. Right. And so, you know, they're not moving to say theistic religion, although Christianity and Islam have exploded in China. Right. Right. Um, and so they're nowhere near a majority. Um, but the, you know, there's probably a hundred million Christians in China and there wasn't, there wasn't a century ago. Yeah. So, so there is, there is that. Russia's interesting because while most people do say they're Orthodox Christians, a lot of them don't go to services, but mm. it's also like the services are really long. So you kind of wonder yeah. if they, if they had their 45 minute mega church, whether they would, um, whether they would, um, show up or not. But yeah. so it's hard to, I think, no, but I, you know, I would still think, you know, it, there's still been a big sea change, uh, yeah. in Russia. I don't know if I'd call them like a full blown religious revival. It may be more cultural. Um, what we're really seeing actually in terms of really sincere conversions or, you know, and mass explosion of pieties in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the indigenous religions are being replaced. So I'm actually expecting increasing Christian Muslim conflict in Africa. And it's just going to, I think it's going to sort of stretch throughout the century. Is that, um, is that, is that like a, would you call that more in, in Africa? Would you call it more like a revival movement where it's actually happening like ground up or is there like a top down? Cause I know it, in, in, old times like the top-down stuff would become like santeria or something right they would still have their they would still have their uh yeah, they, traditional uh, syncretisms yeah syncretisms yeah. yeah i mean um there's been a number of christian thinkers that have kind of focused on the sort of global the christian the new christendom of the global south and uh what exactly that comes to mm-hmm. um and yeah sometimes they kind of mix some heterodox stuff but actually a lot of the kind of low church protestants and to clear out those beliefs uh, it's really the Catholics that allow more, more syncretism. Okay. Um, so it kind of depends. Um, yeah. I mean, like, you know, gods become like replace them with, with saints or whatever. Not that Catholics worship saints. They don't, but you know, if you, you go to South America, for instance, 
you know, I just kind of picked up and integrated a lot of, a lot of, uh, indigenous ideas. Um, but one of the things also that's very common to this growing Christianity in the global South is, is their charismatics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, there's that. I mean, Africa is weird because there weren't as many kind of uh, Southern Africa, like Sub-Saharan rather. Africa. Okay. Is that you didn't have the same kind of suppression movements to the same extent that you had, you know, kind of in the Northern hemisphere. So that's not so much a reversion as a conversion. Okay. Um, but those immigrants, you know, I mean, Africa is going very quickly demographically. Um, and many, many, many immigrants, you know, are traveling to, con- you know, countries all over the world, like the United States. And I've heard a number of Christians say, you know, look, we're going to expect missionaries to the U.S. from Africa and we've already right. got them. Yeah. Anglicans. And yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, um, OK, let's let's do some work on three words that I think will help the audience. Uh, liberals, post-liberals and anti-liberals. All right, let's go. Um, so I think of liberalism as chiefly uh, a political tradition. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a theory or a set of theories about what government should do. So some people think of liberalism as like a way of life, something that just describes like the ultimate good and how to live and so on. And I don't think that's what most liberals are trying to do. They're trying to reform government and reform social and economic institutions. Only some liberals have this kind of comprehensive theory of life. Okay, well, so if liberalism is a sort of broadly political tradition, um, what are its core tenets? Um, some people have a kind of list of five or six or seven. I tend to fo- focus on four. So the first liberal principle is that of individual and small group freedom and protection from, protection from the interference by government. There are different conceptions of liberty that are thrown around. Some it's freedom from interference by others. Others like the freedom to live a rational life. Sometimes it's a mix. Um, so that really, it really depends, but freedom is the first principle of the liberal political tradition. The next principle is equality and liberals dispute the doctrine of equality at at a minimum. It's, you know, equal rights. That is whatever rights we have. We all have them the same. Um, also liberals have traditionally fought really hard against, uh, power inequalities. So first to constitutionalize monarchs, to put them, you know, to get rid of absolute monarchy, to remove aristocratic privileges. Uh, very big deal. Obviously, the United States, from the very beginning of the Constitution, you can't bestow uh, titles of nobility. It's mm-hmm. just, just barred. Um, that's a very liberal approach. Um, they, liberals also supported increasing the franchise, right? So over time, letting people without property vote, letting women vote. Um, so then, you know, you get this debate about economic inequality. And then liberals kind of split. And there's a sort of a lot of back and forth, particularly in the 20th century. But all liberals are for certain kinds of equality. Is that um, between it just our left and right liberals? Is yes. That so left, okay. left liberals tend to think that liberalism and liberal institutions and freedom uh, from oppression and equality require the redistribution of wealth um, and, um, and the creation of um, things like unions and so on. Whereas some classical liberals or their revival in what we call neoliberalism or libertarianism uh, tend to stress market freedoms and sort of argue against the need for the redistribution of wealth and defend free markets and so on. So the liberal traditions, you know, very, very much diversified, particularly uh, in the in the late back half of the 20th century. Once socialism, in fact, once fascism was defeated and socialism was sort of confined, uh, liberals began this kind of fierce debate about, like, should we have a welfare state or not? How big should it be? Mm. Um, And so on. Um, So equality is another principle, but it's just interpreted in lots of different ways. Uh, uh, The third principle is is the ideal of toleration. Right. Mm. So the idea that, you know, we should not necessarily be less certain about our own views. Some liberals do say like we're super fallible. You know, we make all kinds of mistakes. So we should, you know, listen to a diversity of viewpoints. Others give a more conscience-based take. So like Mills, more like 
the epistemic take, like we'll learn more, whereas like say John Locke would say more, it's just like a matter of conscience. Um, but whatever it is, um, we should disestablish religion and, and, or make it anemic establishment like in, um, in, in the Anglican Church, right? The Church of England. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and we should tolerate first all Protestants. Uh, then that gets extended to, to Catholics and Jews with time. Um, so theists in general. Um, and then now we're starting to see it's sort of full extension to atheists in like the field of religious exemptions where non-religious people say get exemptions too. So it, there's a broad, gradual broadening of the idea of religious toleration. And it's also being extended into the sort of moral domain. So, you know, we have to tolerate secular moral doctrines, you know, as well. So, so that's the third principle. So we've done freedom, equality, toleration. And then the fourth is, is a doctrine of what I call harmony of interests or more minimally mutual advantage. Liberalism is really different from conservatism and socialist traditions in that it's kind of the win-win ideology. So you're kind of always looking for ways of creating peace and having a very non-conflictual view of society, say relevant to, relative to say Marxist socialism where Marx says history is the history of class struggle. So it's just an inherently conflictual model of social order. The liberals are saying, no, we can organize things so everybody wins. We can have mutual advantage. Um, we don't necessarily have to have class. Boom. <laughs> Clapping. Yes. Good. So, um, so, so the third principle of liberalism, or the fourth principle, rather, is the doctrine of a harmony of interests or mutual advantage. So liberalism is very much the win-win political ideology. You know, you see market liberals neoliberals or libertarians stress that, look, if we have the free market, like people benefit each other, they engage in mutually beneficial exchange. You know, left liberals will stress more democracy. You know, if we had democracy, life will be better off. People will be more protected from private power. It's not a zero-sum game, right? Yes, yes. It's it's most fundamentally the anti-zero-sum political tradition. Okay. Okay. So, So it's those four principles that I think make for a liberal. They're interpreted in different ways. There's lots of internal disputes, but that's, I think, about what liberalism is. Okay. Now, post-anti-liberalism. Post-liberalism is a pretty vague uh, category. Um, it includes a whole host of different people, depending on how much they're opposed to liberal political tradition in what way. But one of the things that unites um, post-liberals is that they um, attribute uh, whatever the uh, certain doctrines of liberty to liberalism that they think are mistaken and incompatible mm. with a kind of communal human good. Very common in post-liberalism to say this idea of negative freedom, of freedom from the state, um, uh, is a mistake um, because it individualizes or atomizes societies, undermines families, and so on. Hmm. It's frequent for post-liberals to see liberalism as a kind of comprehensive doctrine or whole theory of life. Um, they think that regardless of what liberals say about having more limited political ambitions, liberalism is a theory of life functionally. And it's, the fa- and it's a false theory because it's fundamentally, say, anti-Christian or anti-Muslim or what have you. Okay. Um, so, so post-liberals have a very strong in term- intense critique of liberal society um, in terms of you know, being too individualistic, too focused on autonomy um, a- against community and, re- and, and traditional religion. Um, they also tend to reject strong doctrines of equality. Um, and want more, they often friendly to the establishment of religion. So they're a little weaker on the toleration. I, so I, I can see the, uh, the religious impetus there. I wonder if it, are there, are there, uh, secular post-liberals as well who would say like the, the thing that we have a problem with is maybe not the atomization of society, but the toleration of 
religions. You know, we, we need to go further in, and not tolerate them or something like that. Yeah. I mean, once you start getting people that are worried about the liberal tradition on the left, they pretty much just fall under the socialism camp. Okay. Um, and because socialism, you know, in many cases, sometimes we're friendly to liberalism. Other times just we're incredibly hostile. Mm-hmm. And I think many on the left today, what we I call like the woke left or whatever, sure. they're very anti-liberal. Um, but, and they don't all necessarily identify as socialists, but it, the more sophisticated of them, they're like, well, liberalism, blah, you know, um, um, they, you know, a lot of the radical movements with respect to race and gender and so on, mm-hmm. they were opposed to liberalism because liberalism is kind of like a reformist mindset. It's not like a revol- exactly a revolutionary mindset in the same way as say socialism is. And so liberals would be like, well, we really need to think about this before we make a really huge change. We, we could make a huge change. We're not conservatives. We're open to huge change. We better be careful. And many of the socialists are saying we can't wait. Right. Um, we got to have it. We got to have equality now. Okay, so many on the left, you know, they don't like liberalism for for that reason. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things, but but people who use the phrase post-liberal, they tend to be on the social right, and they okay. do tend to be religious. Economically, they're more on the left. Um, so so or the or the center, um, but but post-liberals tend to be much friendlier to the regulatory state, uh, to the welfare state, um, than 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 the liberal, at least the right liberal or classical liberal position. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. Does yeah. um, I don't know a whole ton about like demographics, and I I love armchair philosophy type stuff. So like this is all brand new. Is that are, are post liberals? Do you know if they're if they're like um, are they more millennials? Or are they more like boom? I could see boomers being more socially left, uh, despite you know their own beliefs, but they also are like, hey, I can't wait for my my check to show up from the government. And so I could see that, but I don't, I can't see like millennials being like that, but maybe. So it, 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 I think that the amount of post-liberalism grows as you go down the generations, they might not necessarily know that, um, term. Um, and I think that, you know, among like Gen Z, like you're going to see, I think a lot of left-wing anti-liberalism, but a lot of right-wing anti-liberalism. One of the reasons I wrote my book was to address young post-liberals and anti-liberals. Okay. So the post-liberals, I'm, you know, one of the things they're vague about versus the anti-liberals is that they don't really have like a positive political ideal. They don't really have even a, a clear political program. Mm-hmm. Um, and they know what they don't like, but they don't really know what to do. And so many of them will just say, yeah, I don't really know how to change liberal order except at the margins. I just know I'm against it. Um, I know that it's, it's, it's poisonous and, and problematic. So you get people like Rod Dreher, who's a post-liberal, and you know he's sort of pushing this Benedict Option idea um, as a kind of localist resistance of so the kind of um, what he calls some call liquid modernity, the idea mm-hmm. that you know like you dissolve all of these traditional institutions, they have to be kind of rebuilt from the ground up. Uh, Patrick Deneen's another such case, though I I think in the last uh, bit he's transitioned to well I think more full-blown anti-liberalism. Um, but then, you know, you have people like uh, John Milbank or Adrian Pabst or a variety of people that you know, they, they haven't really got a positive program. So they're post-liberals in the sense that they're kind of beyond liberalism as an ideology or what they think liberalism is, because I think they tend to be pretty mistaken about what liberalism is. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they're not they've not really got a clear eye of the the alternative. They want one. haven't quite got it. Okay. So that's at least what I call the distinction I draw between post and anti-liberals. The anti-liberals have a clearer idea of what they want. Um, they all, they reject liberalism more fiercely. So they tend to be sort of against any, like they're not worried about interference from government as much. They're don't care about political equality at all, but many Mm -hmm. of them are like friendly to monarchy. 
Um, they're against universal religious freedom entirely and want to go back to the coercive establishment of religion. Um, and um, they tend to have a very conflictual view of society, of seeing politics as a matter of friend versus enemy. So they're against all of liberalism's central tenets. Yeah. Um, and basically all the anti-liberals on the right are, are, are religious. Um, okay. You have some Protestants and Eastern Orthodox, but the most prominent among the anti-liberals uh, in this country are Roman Catholic. Yeah. Um, so, so, and, and then, you know, unlike the post-liberals, they say, look, I mean, we had a model of civilization, a religious civilization, and this is something, you know, we have to be really careful about this, but that we really can restore. Mm. Um, we, re we really can make right. There are some anti-liberals that are more ske skeptical of the practicality of this than others. Okay. Sorry. Are, are, are um, the folks you have in mind, the anti-liberals in that movement, are they, are they hangovers or holdovers from, uh, from years back from, you know, hundreds of years back. And, and it's just been like a consistent thread that the parents have been teaching kids or are these like new folks who are like, Hey, I'm taking my faith more seriously. And turns out I, now I think like, I'm going to take my faith radically seriously. And I'm going to apply that to government as well. Do you have any sense of whether it's been oh, a consistent it's stream very much the first. it's not a consistent stream at all okay in the united states i mean the complication of catholics in america is they've been oppressed most of the time mm -hmm. um and there was always this vigorous debate within american catholicism about sort of how much of the american experiment could catholics take on and so there's mm -hmm. always a range of disagreement and there were always at least a small group of people saying no 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 no, no. you like there's something sort of fundamentally mistaken about the american experiment but the kind of american friendly catholics you know just totally went out and by the time you have the Second Vatican Council, many of the American Catholics are quite influential in moving uh, the Catholic Church's sort of public theology, maybe not exactly its dogma, sure. uh, in a more liberal kind of like human rights regime, a radical, you know, total freedom of religion um, direction, which for the Catholic Church, you know, was, was new uh, to yeah. it. Um, and, um, you know, I think, um, so, so I think what happened with Roman Catholics is that they gradually became accepted by American society. So, you know, until Nancy Pelosi stepped down as Speaker of the House, we had a Catholic president, a Catholic Speaker of the House, and five Catholic Supreme Court justices. Yeah, you right. They're anyone, doing it in the politics. Yeah. If you told anyone 100 years ago that that was going to happen, they would be like, no way. That's not going to happen. That was back when the Klan went after Catholic schools all over the country. Oh, wow. So, I mean, yeah, people don't understand how anti-Catholic the Klan was. Um, so, um, so, yeah. So, um, you know, the 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 story of Catholicism in America, sort of them being on the outside and them being on the inside. But over the last 15 years, traditional Catholics have gone kind of back on the outside. Mm. Why? Well, one is their opposition to abortion, mm -hmm. um, becoming more strong uh, and also more strong within the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Got them more in trouble in the academy in particular. So many Catholic intellectuals, you know, having gone through the academy, went through it thinking, okay, look, you know, I've got views that People will think I'm a moral monster if I express them. Um, and then with the LGBT movement in Obergefeld in 2013, Catholics, you know, traditional Catholics were like, look, the only way to, to move forward is to give up my faith in politics and just to, you know, approach it like Biden or Pelosi and say, look, I've got my private faith, but it doesn't really impact my politics very much directly. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's going back to like JFK and him saying, oh, I'm not beholden to the Pope at all. You know, I prioritize democracy or what have you. Um, and so many, you know, Roman Catholics, younger Roman Catholics, especially in their 20s and 30s, but there's some older Catholics saying this too, say, you know what, the American experiment looked like a good idea in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, but that was just temporary. 
and so, you know, we need to go back to really understanding the American project and Catholicism is opposed. Mm. Um, and in fact, the whole liberal ethos animating the American constitution um, is something that has to be sort of changed and opposed at least one day somehow in one way or another. Yeah. And I caught in the book um, a bunch of names I'd, I'd never even heard of before. Uh, and you're doing yeah. all this research into different, all these different mediums. I'm like, man, I had no idea. Cause when I, I'm a Protestant and when I think of these kind of movements, I think, well, Christian nationalism, whatever the heck that means, depending on who you ask, like that's who everyone's always worried about. And most, I'm in Chicagoland and most of the Catholics I know are like, I will go to church on Easter and Christmas and that's cool. And I'm Catholic, but you know, I'm Italian and that's why, or I'm, you know, whatever. So to see that this is like a movement and it's got a name integralism, I think yeah. is right. Can, can you, yeah. um, yeah. you flesh that out for us? Like I, I, I was totally unaware sure. of this. Sure. Sure. So, um, it's a funny little story that I, uh, you know, w what happened, but it's, it fits with the broader narrative I was telling about the revival of faith infused political movements, because. Mm -hmm. Um, as sort of Catholicism dies in Western Europe, there are uh, several English uh, theologians, uh, political philosophers, but the leader of these is Thomas Pink, uh, who's a spectacular uh, philosophical historian, theorist of the will, um, sort of master of church history. Um, uh, and he recognizes that like the Catholic Church is in decline, rapid decline. Why? And the view he came to was the idea that the church does not really take itself seriously as a political institution in this, in a legal institution. It's just, it's an institution that's meant to help promote salvation, but by reigning in sin and actually holding people responsible, uh, for sin. Mm. And, um, he thinks actually that's going back in church history. That was very much how the church thought of itself for centuries. Um, but if the church thinks of itself as a polity, the state is also a polity. Then there's this really fascinating question, which is which superior and how do they relate to each other? Mm -hmm. Now, if the church has a nobler end, salvation, there must be some sense of which is the state superior, not in the sense that it rules in every respect. We know from scripture that God ordains the secular power directly or the non-religious power directly. Um, and so, you know, in the medieval period, but really during the counter-reformation, um, when you get Francisco Suarez and, and Robert Bellarmine um, articulating this idea um, that only came to be called integralism in the 20th century, late 20th century, um, in particular, uh, where you look, God ordains kind of two powers to promote the common, the temporal common good on the one hand and the eternal common good on the other, the state and the church, um, but that they should have this orderly connection, as Pope Leo XIII put it, like that between of the soul and the body. So here mm. the church is the soul and the, the state is the body. It gives us its ultimate purpose. It animates it. And what it means is that a Christian state uh, can kind of integrate, hence integralism, with the church so that the church can direct its policy in spiritual affairs. Mm. So, for instance, maybe the control of her heretical books, heretical communications, the punishment of heresy and apostasy. If this sounds a little bit like Islamism, it should. Um, there are some important similarities uh, between these views. Mm. So essentially, you have the Catholic legal code, the code of canon law, and the state's civil law would sort of support and back it in various ways. And this is how many regimes operated in the medieval high, high Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, um, early modern uh, Catholic regimes and, and, and so on. So, you know, Ping's on really good ground in thinking that, yeah, this was something that was a very sort of popular widespread view among Catholic theologians for a really long time until really the late 20th century when, uh, and the early, uh, the, um, oh, sorry, the early 20th century when people really started to kind of want to be more on board with the liberal 
kind of international order, especially after the Second World War. Mm. Um, and so Pink is saying, you know, look, we lost this understanding of ourselves and we, we need to recover it for, so the church would recover it. Now, what's important about Pink and the other British integrals is they had no political ambitions at all. This is like 2008, starting in 2008 or so. No, it was, a, it was a, a, a very small renewal movement uh, within the Catholic Church. Um, but then it got imported to the United States and it did something very different there. Hmm. There are a group of integralist intellectuals, which include actually some people your listeners may have heard of, but I, I'm not at liberty to say who they are, um, got involved in a Facebook group uh, in 2012, 2013, and, and we're starting to discuss these issues. You know, people have gone to Ivy League institutions or Catholic institutions like Thomas Aquinas College, and they start saying, okay, you know, we're against liberalism. We think it's acidic. We don't like economic liberalism, like the market. They don't like political liberalism. Um, what are we for? Uh, and they start to kind of reconstruct what they're for. And they begin a blog, the Josiahs, um, that's actually remarkably designed to ultimately produce edited volumes, which there are two now. So the hmm. blog posts all kind of fit together. So it's a very small, it's a very small movement. I mean, you're looking at a few dozen people, um, but then they start to engage on Twitter and start to bring more people in. And then once Trump was elected, the group splits. And um, the, the left-wing folks um, kind of peter out and the right-wing folks explode. And they start to convert people left and right. So now I would say there's, there's thousands of Catholic integralists, most of whom I think are under 30. Wow. Um, okay. Well, and, yeah, and, and yeah. so, and they're mostly leftovers. Uh, they're mostly the, uh, the right wing side of it. Do, do these folks also not like the market? Like the free yeah, market? Yeah, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty skeptical, but they're, 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 many of the early left wing integralists were very anti-market. But the right has moved in an anti-market direction big way. So, you know, one of the leading kind of like uh, Catholic integral is Sorabo Mori. He's the most famous of them. Um, he's just written a book, Tyranny, Inc., where he essentially takes a left-wing view about um, the way that markets are tyrannical. So that just came out yesterday, hmm. uh, August 15th of, of this recording. Um, so they're very much moving in an economically left-wing direction, partly, I think, strategically because they have so many enemies on the new right. I mean, with, with, when Trump got elected, um, all of these kind of like minority strands and conservative thought, like got a breath of fresh air huh. because it was such a defeat to traditional Reaganite conservatism. This Trump just was so um, different, yeah. uh, to put it neutrally, um, that yeah, it was like opening Pandora's box, basically. Was, was everyone trying to grab um, on and say like that? This this is our movement. This is our people, yes. like mm -hmm. arguing That's over right. wands and stuff? E exactly. Trying to say, okay, who are going to be the intellectual leaders of the sort of Trumpian and post-Trumpian right? Okay. Uh, there's a bunch of different groups, and we, we don't have time to sort of go through them all. Sure. Um, Catholic integralists were one of them. Okay. Um, and the advantage that the integralists had over all the other factions um, is that they had this extremely rich tradition of philosophical theology behind them, mm. and they could draw on it. And so, in many ways, they were just a lot more smart and careful in terms of their view. Like, oh, we'll go read like this encyclical from the 19th century, you know, or Go read Aquinas, you know, uh, he has this little book on kingship, De Regna, which is, you know, if you read it in isolation from his other works, looks really integralist. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, uh, it, so, so, so the thought here is, you know, they've got all this intellectual heft all of a sudden, um, and they're very influential among elite, elite Catholic thinkers, um, mm -hmm. especially on the right, mm -hmm. um, to the point where there are many like ca young Catholic, like law students. Uh, Catholic seminary students, uh, Catholic philosophy students, you know, all over the country where if you ask them, they'll say something like, well, yeah, but maybe I wouldn't go as far as like Harvard law professor, Adrian Riol, 
Um, but like, I'm very sympathetic to integralism. Um, I'm very open to it. Uh, and I just, you know, hear about and, and listen to and talk with, you know, a lot of such folks who are just totally alienated from American society, uh, blame that on liberalism um, and want a, a radical uh, alternative. And of course, you know, um, the Catholic Church, you know, I think more than any other religious organization has really laid out historically what that might look like. Now, I find this, you know, like stunningly unappealing. Um, but, uh, but for whatever reason, um, a lot of, a lot of younger Catholics, um, think it's the way to go. This is really fascinating. I'm sure that a lot of my listeners, uh, would, would identify this and probably in the same way that you're saying where I don't go as extreme as this or that, but yeah. I'm, so folks, if you're listening, let me know in the comments, you don't have to like out yourself or anything, but, uh, that would be, there are many shy integralists. There are many shy integralists. Can, I can imagine a lot. Yeah. There, the, the market thing is really throwing me for a loop because I, I've seen, um, the libertarian movement, uh, those folks switch into like uh, anarcho-capitalism, whatever that means, and anarchism, and then go like, it's either between like minarchism or anarchism and straight up monarchy. And I'm like, wait, what are you saying? What's going on? I thought you were American, bro. And then, so I can see that trend, but they're still like, no, the, we want to, the market's a good thing, the free hand, you know, we need to free it more. Yeah, yeah, so for yeah. people to be like, no, like we need mm. the Pope or someone or the Catholic church to be in charge of the market is like brand new to me. Yeah. So this is actually really fascinating because, you know, I, I've, I've been involved in one way or another in sort of classical liberal libertarian politics again, since I was 17. Mm -hmm. And I've, so I've been watching the movement very carefully, reading its great thinkers, uh, writing, you know, trying to do research into them. I read a lot on Ethe Hayek. Uh, I used to have a very strong interest in anarcho-capitalism, um, yeah. particularly when uh, I was, I was a lot younger, when I, I even identified as one uh, okay. for wow. four years, you know, uh, age 17 to, to 21. Um, and well, and they and they they look to to Tolkien, and they'll say like, here he, he's one of our thought leaders in this, and it's like, dude, who, who yes, can argue with Tolkien? You know? So it's super it's super strange. But some of the first integralists they didn't call themselves this were actually defectors from libertarianism. Okay. So um, Ed Fazer is the most the one you're most likely to have heard of. Um, okay. He's a sort of Thomist uh, uh, apologist for like he's written against a lot of the new atheism and so mm -hmm. on. He didn't call himself an integralist, but you know he kind of introduced. He was a he wrote this really nice book on Nozick. Um, Robert Nozick, the great libertarian philosopher at Harvard, um, in 2002, but he quickly sort of decided, well, you know, libertarians talk about natural rights and natural law, but if you go and read the natural law theorists, they're not libertarians at all. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's just like this intellectual pipeline, um, from libertarianism to these kind of Catholic views in part because of the similarities on natural law, in part because of having like weirdly common aesthetic sensibilities, mm. like Tolkien, for instance, yeah. um, and because they, the libertarians like Tolkien because the Shire is stateless. Mm -hmm. And yeah. in the introduction of the state toward, you know, at the very end, is seen as a terrible development. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's right, the, right. the wheels of, you know, economy crushing. Yes. And that's Sauron. And yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but Tolkien's no libertarian. You know, he's a medievalist. He's a, he's an anti-industrialist. It's like a Luddite in a lot of ways. Right. Um, yeah. Nature's so, good and the Shire's yeah. good and all the industrial. Yeah, exactly. Bad, yeah. Tearing down trees and totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there is this, I think, intellect, like intellectual pipeline, but there's also like the, um, like the troll contrarian pipeline, which yes. is, you know, like eighties and the nineties and the early in the two thousands, especially the Ron Paul campaign in 2008, 2012, mm -hmm. you get all of these converts to libertarianism and all of a sudden libertarianism has like 10 times as many members. Yeah. But, but many of them are like conservative Christians and they aren't like fully on board. 
That's and, me, and my, me and my brother. That's the yeah, yeah. yeah. This is yeah, yeah. So, twelve, yeah, 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 yeah. And so you know, in 2016, you know, before Trump, like Time has this like picture of Rand Paul and is like the libertarian moment and all of this stuff. And then Trump gets elected, and boom, <laughs> just crushed. And then after COVID, the hardcore like paleo libertarian anarcho capitalists take over the libertarian party and completely break with like the libertarian intelligentsia and like philosophy, mm -hmm. economics, media, think tanks. Um, and so now the movement, in my view, is like fractured and, 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 and basically dead. Yeah. Um, but what happened was young people came in and, and the way to be contrarian was no longer to have these radical economic views, to have these radical cultural views. Yeah. And there's a, my theory about why this happened and, you know, is that essentially these younger kids grew up and there was YouTube. And mm -hmm. in YouTube, if atheists and theists were dumb, you could go just like watch a debate where that was false yeah because all the good analytic field religion had filtered down into christianity more broadly and so you had the atheism theism wars on youtube i was a little old for that hmm. uh, i didn't start you know be because i you know i was born in 1982 um so i had the internet but only after i was 12 um and you know the, all that stuff starts to happen you know at, at the very least after 9 11 when i'm in college hmm. um and, you know, it, the, you, a lot of those debates, so you realize, oh, wow, theists can really defend themselves. I didn't expect that at all. New atheists basically deceived me um, or, or just didn't know what was going on. I cannot believe there's all of these resources. And so I think what happened to younger people, it's like, well, being a theist is no longer for dumb people. Like you, mm -hmm. like you almost never hear that anymore. Libertarian right. movement 20 years ago, the Randians, it'd be like, oh, you're a theist. You're irrational. Huh. That's a shame. <laughs> yeah. Right. But now, I mean, you talk to, you know, a 20 something theist libertarian and they could just boom 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 like they're just in a super good shape yeah so um but then once you opened up theism within libertarianism um this weird thing started to happen that like christian theological stuff started to be in contact with libertarians and libertarians had nothing to say hmm. nothing and they couldn't answer the spiritual longings that many of these younger people had and they said look libertarianism's radically incomplete and it tells me things that I can't bring my spirituality in politics because it's all about markets. It's all about property rights. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so people say, okay, look, if I'm a Catholic anti-liberal, I, I have a theory of human life, of social life, and it's complete. It gives me answers on everything. It even tells me the meaning of life. Libertarianism by design doesn't do that. Right. Um, and so that's why I think the way it's going on the pipeline. There's this intellectual pipeline through Aquinas, and then there's this kind of contrarian uh, pipeline through people that are, you know, perfectly willing to be kind of bring their religion and politics. Mm. That's really fascinating. That's that's really uh, I'm trying to figure out which which line of thought to chase. But there was a yeah. for, for my brother and I, a huge catalyzing force was um, don't tase me, bro. Do you remember yeah. that one? Yes, and that, I do. And, and that was like civil liberties. And we were like, yeah. markets are cool. And we're just kind of like leave us alone. And all the other libertarian folks were like markets and I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. But also like, uh, anti, not anti-police, but anti-police brutality was like a huge yeah. one for a lot of us. We're That's like, right. don't, my brother had a shirt, don't tase me, bro. And it had a taser yeah. on it. And that was a whole thing. Yeah. We'd say it. Um, and that, that kind of disappeared. And that was weird that it just like left. And then black lives matter came up but but then you're you're not really allowed to join that movement and and say those kind of things and say hey we've been thinking about this for a while as well uh which is weird i don't know any any idea why it disappeared or where it went or what 
Oh yeah. I mean, it's because the culture war tore the liber libertarian movement into pieces. Okay. Um, and so many libertarians became team red and team red hates BLM. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's actually just that simple. And now you have all these libertarians that are just like hardcore anti-woke, like back in my day in my halcyon days as a teenage libertarian, we were third way, mm. yeah. you know, we weren't, we weren't involved in the culture war. Yeah. Um, we allowed cultural disagreements within the movement. We disagreed about abortion. We disagreed about religion, but we were, we were going to give freedom to people so that they could live out their own cultural values. Like that, that was our thing. And I still like that part. Yeah. No, no, your um, rights. But, no, yeah. no, what you can do, where some of these folks just go around filming police officers and like, all right, well, yeah. you might be asking for yeah. it, but, but in, also in my day, yeah. opposition to Iraq and the war on terror was similar. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you're talking about was continuous with this opposition to national security state at every level. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I mean, the interesting thing about the Catholic integrals is they're not like super pro cop or anything. They don't really talk about it. They don't really care. Okay. What they care about is, you know, like spiritual life, like eternity and mm. gaining political power in order to bring that about. Mm. So, so they are pro state usually, although there's some anarchist leaning um, um, integrals, but the dominant strand today is statist. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, the story of the transition is, is, and I'm just telling one story, but I'm only one of the only people that has a story. So, uh, <laughs> cause I, I care about like every side of this, uh, this transitional moment over the last 10 years, um, that has completely changed the political landscape of sort of young people that are not progressive, but that are reflective anyway. Yeah. Well, so I mentioned this to you off air, but one of the things that I liked about the book, and I haven't given it like the thorough analytic uh, read right now, but I've looked it over and I really appreciate it. I read the, the first chapter. So you also make arguments. And I one thing that I, I uh, lament about some of my philosopher friends when they turn to uh, sociology or history is like, they, I'm a sociologist now. Like, no, dude, you gave up your birthright. You're still a philosopher. Be a philosopher, Charles Taylor. But uh um, sorry for, for folks who are really big in the Taylor, but I'm sad about that sometimes. Uh, you, I wanted to look over just maybe three arguments. Maybe we can't cover them yeah. all, maybe at least one, mm -hmm. but you have this transition argument, yeah. um, that, that integralism serves as a poor guide for social reform, stability argument, inte integralism predicts disagreement and future conflicts. And then, uh, the justice argument that, that maybe somehow it's, it's, uh, it's internally inconsistent or, you know, there's, there's, a, it gets justice yeah. wrong. Um, can you. Do you have one of those that you want to give to us? Could you give us all three? What, what do yeah, you yeah, I can, I can give all three. So, you know, okay. what we're going after and I'm going after in the book and try, try to treat fairly is the integralist ideal, mm -hmm. right? So like you can beat up on any of you by saying, well, in practice, it doesn't work as built, right? And I just didn't think that was the most interesting thing. I wanted to say, is integralism true even when it's working according to its proponent's plan, Yeah. right? So the three arguments that I give, the transition stability and justice arguments, are premised around critiquing the ideal. So the transition argument says there's no way to get to the ideal without violating Catholic moral teaching. So the, the problem is that you have to both take over the state and make it Catholic. Um, you have to convince the church to um, become integralist again. Oh, sure. Um, and then you have to convince them to cooperate. <laughs> that. And you have to do that, and you can't just kill lots of people who disagree, like you by by Catholicism's own light. So what I say is, transition argument is that going to integralism today in any large scale pluralistic society is going to be morally infeasible. Like you can do it, you can make it happen, but it's going to be violent. It's going to be ugly, really ugly. Um, or you can respect Catholic moral teaching, and then it's infeasible. 
So, so that's the transition argument. I go very carefully through Adrian Brumel's uh, strategic writings because he's written a bunch, this Harvard Law professor on maybe how we get to integralism. Okay. So if you can't really get to it, it, it one of the, the cool things about ideals is they're supposed to sort of help you figure out how to arrive at them, hmm. right? And I think integralism can't do that. So that's one weakness of the ideal. But there's still plenty of people willing to say, okay, well, maybe we don't know how to get there. Maybe it's a poor guide to social reform. But it's still true. It's still the ideal. It's still the best regime. And then I go after that view of two count. So they say, and they're going to say that their view is a unique moral order and a just moral order. Mm -hmm. okay, so it's stable and just. And it's uniquely stable and just because it rests not only on our grasp of the natural moral law, but on social and institutional grace. That is, God has graced the state and society so that our knowledge of natural law and our ability to follow natural law is healed, not entirely, but better than in, say, a society that does not have um, the church sort of integrated with the state in the same way. Mm -hmm. So now why might this, they say that this regime will be kind of uniquely stable because it, it speaks to like the good of the whole person, people will be able to grasp and act for moral considerations and so on. And they use the term order all the time. You know, a lot of the integrals have a substat called post-liberal order. Okay. Um, and so there's a whole host of reasons I think the regime would, would uh, destabilize. But one of the big problems and, and is that um, in an integralist regime, when you baptize your children, they acquire legal liabilities. So it means that they can be prosecuted for heresy or apostasy. Oh, yeah. um, and mm -hmm. so what integralism does is it makes baptism expensive yeah. relative to like less aggressively Catholic regimes. And so the thought is like it, dis it, it discourages baptism. But as you discourage baptism, the number of people that come under the states the, the, in the, the church authorized state's authority will shrink as people say, look, I'm going to do a secret baptism. I'm not going to tell the church or, you know, I'm, I'm going to slightly alter the baptismal rites so that it doesn't count, um, you know, or I'll become another denomination or what have you. Yes, there are legal penalties, but I would rather risk those penalties then risk the penalties that come from putting myself under the control of the church. There's, there's also the disincentive um, of the fact that integralism isn't dogma. And so dissenting from integralism is reasonable. And so there are going to be a lot of Catholics that are very pious, but they're opposed to integralism. And so the question is, okay, well, do you let them into the government or not? Hmm. If you let them take positions of authority, they're going to dilute the regime. If you don't, then I think you have to treat them in ways where they have like weaker political rights um, in a way that Catholicism uh, rejects. Um, so you have a Catholic state, but they're just saying, look, state should be like less, less coercively Catholic. Um, and so because you're going to have these disagreements that aren't necessarily what say, uh, follower John Rawls would call a reasonable disagreement, but it's just one that's the result, not maybe of human sin, because sin, you know, reason gets tower of Babel, right? Like we disagree, but it's not just that, like, there's a lot of things in just political judgment and prudence. That people are going to disagree about. And as long as integralism isn't required by dogma, there's going to be people who reject it um, and who think it's too violent. Um, and they're likely to resist the system while being com in completely good standing with the church. Um, th there's, there's a whole bunch of other arguments. Um, but in general, the idea is that integralism contains the seeds of its own destruction. Yeah. Um, that the worries about the kinds of pluralism and disagreement and resistance you expect in an integralist order by its own lights will undermine the positive effects of grace and coercion that are supposed to make the system stable. So it won't just collapse. It will collapse by its own logic. Yeah. 
And what that means is if integralism is not a stable ideal, why would we go for it? Because we're mm. just going to end up back where we started. Um, and so what I say is this explains why all integralist regimes collapsed into milder Catholic establishmentarian regimes, where you don't have this tight relationship between Pope and crown. Um, the Catholic church is still established, but all of its coercion is based on like natural law with respect to abortion or stuff like that. And so I just say, look, um, once you go to weaker Catholic regimes and you don't impose all these, these sort of costs and create all this sort of conflict and disagreement, you end up with what actually happened to basically every Catholic country on earth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so I just give an explanation you know, why this happened. Is the, the ideal is un unstable. It's going to lead away from itself. And so it's like, well, why would you even go to it if you, you can't stay there, right? Yeah. So, you know, my first two lines on this is like integralism, like you can't get there, you can't stay there. And it's unfair, which leads to the justice argument. Yeah. That's my little slogan about it. It's like, it, you can't get there, you can't stay there, it's unfair. So what's unfair about integralism? Well, here's something really curious about it. What makes you a citizen of the church and subject to legal penalties, as I already pointed out, is when you get baptized, even if you're an infant, even if you're baptized as an infant and you're not raised Catholic or Christian. Like if you were baptized Jew and you're raised Jewish, someone baptizes you like in secret or something, um, you're, a, you're a citizen of the church. Um, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No worries. Hold on. Sorry. Okay. All right. So going back. Yeah. Um, so regardless of whether you're even a Christian, if you're validly baptized, you're a citizen of the church, subject to all the rights and responsibilities thereof. So what baptism has to do is it's not just transformative for us in becoming part of the body of Christ. It has to serve what I call as a moral transformer. Mm -hmm. Integralists say that you can't coerce people into the faith. You can't forcibly baptize people. You can't use religious coercion on the unbaptized, but you can use it on the baptized. And the only way to explain why coercion goes from un unjust, why religious coercion goes from unjust to just, is to explain it by way of baptism. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what I say is, let's grant everything the Catholic Catechism teaches about baptism for the sake of argument. It still doesn't explain why coercing the unbaptized is wrong, but coercing the baptized is okay. Yeah. So, does... so it's, un it's an unjust treatment, and this is interesting, of yeah. people in the church not just outside of the church, right? Yeah. It's the people in the church or like the people with, that are Muslim in an Islamist regime that are subject to all of these really strong constraints. And there's, I think there's no way to, to solve this kind of what I call the baptism dilemma, which mm. is again, baptism supposed to make religious coercion okay. And there's just no way it can do that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if this is part of your argument. It doesn't seem like it is, but the... There'd be, there would be citizens who were baptized as infants who it was not their choice to be baptized who are subject to these laws uh, against their own, uh, you know, volition. Like they, yep. they're like, hey, look, I didn't have any control over that. I, I exist as baptized without my own consent. Yeah. Does that, does that play any, what, what, what role? I'm, I'm sure Catholic theology has it's a... An important, it's an important role yeah. because... Um, it's what actually raises uh, a lot of the most important objections. Because one thing people don't understand about integralism is how key the theology of baptism is to the view. Okay. Um, if you didn't baptize infants, actually, it would be far less objectionable because yeah. everyone would have to agree to be part of it. Of course, but since people reasonably disagree, you'd never be able to get everyone to agree to integralism. And so it wouldn't work. Yeah, um, this, is, yeah. Yeah, this is one reason you can't get Protestant um, you can't get Protestant integralism very easily because either they don't baptize infants um, or they do, but it doesn't do what Catholicism has traditionally thought that it does. 
So that's why like Protestantism is more friendly to liberalism. You, 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 it's really hard to get integralism off the ground within Protestantism. Oh yeah. And um, even, in, even in a strong form like Lutheranism, you can still opt out. Yep. Bapt- you can, you can yeah, leave your baptism. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, you can get integralism of a kind in Eastern Orthodoxy too, uh, okay. but it's, it's kind of weaker and we don't really have time to get into the, yeah. the details of Symphonia and all these kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, but um, so, so, so this baptism of people of infants that are raised non-Christian is a really big deal. And it's a big deal because this was actually a huge problem in practice in the medieval period, mm-hmm. in part- particular because of the mistreatment of the Jews. And because Jews were treated so badly as potential threats to social order because they rejected Christ and, mm-hmm. assimil- and wouldn't ass- assimilate, right? Um, many Jews would get baptized, but not sincerely. Mm. Or their children would be baptized against their wills because, you know, someone just like violated their rights as parents. Um, and then there's all these problems. So a lot of people um, also, they weren't allowed to leave the faith. So people don't know this, but the Spanish Inquisition um, focused mostly on conversos, who were Jews who had converted to Christianity, mm. um, but no longer believed or who were baptized as infants, but didn't believe. So there were uh, unbaptized Jews that, that were that were persecuted, but many focus was on bringing people back into the fold. Yeah. This norm still exists in Islam. I mean, if you leave Islam, your family can ostracize you in many cases, but in some cases, it's believed to be a capital crime. Yeah. It's treason, right? And so again, integralism looks a little bit like Islamism. Yeah. Um, so, the, but this issue of becoming a member at birth does raise a lot of these problems, but it's essential to be an alternative to liberalism because if you're not bringing in people at birth and you're bringing them in by consent, you've like given the game away to liberal. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's, that's a really important feature of, of integralism is it's theology of baptism and particularly it's political theology of baptism. Mm. Uh, that in an integralist regime, uh, baptism is a little bit like birthright citizenship. I call mm. it second birthright citizenship, right? It's your second birth. You're a citizen now of church and state in a special, in a, a super citizen in a way of the state um, and that you come under a particular code. This, this, this wasn't so destabilizing the medieval period because the peasants didn't know anything. Right. And they, they weren't mobile and they have any media access. Hmm. And even then, integralism was extremely unstable because of the fights between Pope and Crown. Yeah. So like the integral's favorite case of an re- integralist regime is, is the reign of St. Louis. The, it was King Louis IX of France in the 13th century. This is also the period where like Aquinas is operating in Paris and so on. So golden and, age. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, 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 you know, you get Dante it, a century, a century later. It's like it's this high point architecture, arts, theology, yeah. philosophy, all this stuff. Um, and, um, you know, one of, uh, St. Louis's advisors, uh, becomes Pope Clement the fourth. Um, and so they have this like super tight, uh, relationship and it's like, oh, that was great. Within, I say in the book, like within 35 years, that was gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philip the fair and Boniface the eighth were enemies. Philip the fair tried to kill Boniface the eighth. Boniface the eighth tried every way he could to excommunicate Philip. Um, they were fighting over all kinds of stuff. Um, and like, for instance, um, whenever a cleric would c- commit a crime, uh, um, uh, Philip IV wanted them to be tried in a criminal, ordinary civil court. Yeah. And Boniface said, no, we try them in canonical courts. This is none of your business. Mm-hmm. This is a huge fight between them. It's a very big deal. Yeah. Um, so if you take the best case, and 35 years later, in the medieval period, where everybody is Catholic, basically, it, it's unstable even then. Yeah, so that's why you got to do the history um, in order to sort of understand uh, the view. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
That, that makes a lot of sense. That I'm having flashbacks to one of my professors, John Woodbridge, saying Philip the Fourth of France. He'd always say, "Philip, you got to focus on Philip the Fourth of, of France." Like, um, is is that right? Was he of France? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Just yes. making sure I got that right, Doctor Woodbridge. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 fine. It, yeah, it, but it's it's really it's really striking. Um, you know, the economist Mark Koyama, um, has is a kind of economic historian, and he makes the argument for when integrals like regimes were stable were when the power of church and state were roughly equal in terms of mm. influence. But like before then, in the early Middle Ages, you know, the Western Roman empires collapsed. States are very small and weak. Church doesn't fool with them. The church provides a lot of services indirectly by taking over much of the state capacity of the empire. Right? Dioceses were imper Roman imperial jurisdictions, Pontifex Maximus named yeah. Caesar. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're just taking over because there's no state capacity. Yeah. Um, but by the time you get to Philip the Fair, the French crown is powerful enough to ignore the Pope. Mm -hmm. um, and they start to do so in a lot of ways. Um, and then as the other states start to congeal in Europe, then they just ignore the Pope, too. Um, and then by the Reformation, you know, it's on. Right. So, <laughs> um, you know, so so you can only really get integralism to work when when the integration of church and state is in both sides interest mm -hmm. because they have equal power. And so they can come up with policy bargains. So like. St. Louis could say, oh, you support me as and legitimize me as monarch and I will burn 20,000 Talmuds for you, which is, you know, basically he did burn 20,000 Talmuds in part. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so in any event, that's part, I mean, that's part of the stability argument, but that's one of the reasons it's important to attend to the history and yeah. the economic incentives and all those kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I like the book. I commend it to folks. I'll leave a, uh, I'll leave a link in the description. So if you guys want to pick that up, do, do that. Uh, and it's cheap for a book like this. So it's $15 on Kindle. You go through my website to Oxford. You can get it with a discount code built into the link for 21 bucks. All right, awesome. Have you, yeah. have you thought about the fact that some folks will point to this book as the reason they became integralists? You know, like it's just going to I, happen, I, right? I, yeah, it is. And I'm, I'm perfectly content with it. And, and I'll say this publicly, you know, maybe for the first time, but, you know, I defend integralism for 60 pages before I criticize it for 110. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to be fair to integralists, but I'm also getting trying to get non-integralist Catholics to take integralism seriously intellectually, mm -hmm. because I think it has a certain unity and coherence and elegance. Um, it's a bit like act utilitarianism and ethics. Like it's really internally consistent. Like mm -hmm. what should you do? The good. Right. Um, but it also has like these hideous moral implications, like both <laughs> of these views. Yeah. And so I want integralism around in the same way that I want act utilitarians around. I want them around intellectually because you learn a lot from engaging the view. But I don't want them anywhere near power. I don't want okay. Peter Singer in power. And I don't want Adrian Vermeule in power. Yeah. Um, so what I hope is that people will sort of come on and they'll see, oh, you know, look, this is kind of a matter of theological and political reflection than it is like a program where we take over the U.S. government. <laughs> um, so, you know, if there are more integralists, but there are fewer integralists that um, are completely opposed to American constitutional order, that's fine with me, too. Um, but it is certainly true that whenever you try to make a view look serious, which I do, um, that you risk that people will come to that view. My hope is that in time, you know, the Christian political theology community grows and we're able to articulate lots of very sophisticated alternatives hmm. um, that are based on past figures, but also modern information. So this is why I try to synthesize the kind of philosophical theology, historic philosophy of religion with contemporary politics, economics, history, and so on. Um, and I'm trying more than anything, and this is, I think, what get your viewers maybe really interested in the book, even if they're not interested in the specifics, is I'm trying to lay out how an analytic political theology would proceed. Mm -hmm. What would its methods 
be? How would we determine whether a political theology was true or false? Do we only need philosophy? Do we only need theology? Do we need both? Do we need history? Do we need economics? Do we need comparative religion? Mm -hmm. I say read all of them. Yeah. Um, and so I, I try to make it clear. Um, um, but I think that's what's interesting because, I mean, if you're interested in thinking through your political views, particularly as a Christian, um, I'm hoping to kind of provide you with a, a, a way that you might do that. Yeah, and there's you give five questions to ask religious traditions towards the end, uh, and you also yeah. go and you, you you touch on Sunni Islam and uh, yep. Chinese Confucianism and too. That's so right. It's not just I, I, integralism. It's not just Catholic. I, yeah, yeah, and that's important. It's an important case study, but it's also yeah. you know uh, on the rise. So I, yes. I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope this isn't your only time on, man. You got to come back on and, and school me. Oh, out I'd love to political philosophy. This has been. Great. Oh no, I'd uh, I'd love to come back. I mean, my my long term plans are to now begin to construct an alternative political theology. So awesome. I plan to be in this space for for a long time. Awesome. Um, so the value so option. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's it it. Well, we'll have time to talk about it. I, awesome. I've got lots of thoughts and Fantastic. essays floating around. So. Awesome. Well, that's going to have to do it for now, folks. Yep. Uh, do check the link in the the links in the description to find more from Dr. Kevin Vallier. And uh, this has been Parker's Pensies. As always, all glory to God.